Welcome back to the Reset Rebel podcast with me, Joe Yule. And for today's episode, I'm welcoming back a previous podcast guest, which is something I don't do very often. But on this particular occasion, it felt very necessary and needed and wanted and we are celebrating. So without further ado, I'm going to interview Mr. Ben Dunwell, author of almost a trilogy of books, but not quite. Hi there, Joe. How are you? I'm very good. How are you doing hiding over in the corner there? You're, you're sort of moving away from me further and further. Oh, sorry. I'll, I'll shift in. I'll shift in audibly, um, which is which is sort of the link, in fact, uh, to, to, why, uh, to why we're chatting today. Because uh, whilst I wasn't really working on the second book over the summer, because it was summer in Ibiza and we all know what that feels like, we did get together and we recorded uh, the first book, into its audible format so it is now an audiobook as well which is uh, uh, which you were incredibly helpful with joe and amazingly supportive and i'm uh, hugely grateful for all of that and also to jono at the hub i'm kind of i feel like i'm doing my oscars speech here um everyone was really really lovely because it was quite an intense experience returning to that story after quite a long time and I suppose, I mean, the thing is, I'd been working on the second book, uh, which I still am, and I've come back to it now. And I go round and round a little bit on that. It's it's proving, uh, it's proving elusive, but I do feel it's it's we're getting quite close to the right kind of way of telling the story that it needs to be. So that's that feels good. I feel positive about it. But it was in, it was really really intriguing to return to the first book and. Uh, and to read it aloud, which is was really confronting in many, many ways um, because you're looking at material that uh, that you haven't looked at for a long, long time. Um, and because the book, it kind of, the way it was written, the first one, there were whole chunks of it that were, that existed for a long time and I became very familiar with them and they were edited many, many times, but I... I knew them. I knew them very deeply. Um, and then there were bits that I found <laughs> reading it, which I didn't recognise at all. And they were, I think, the more recent ones, oddly enough. So they were things that had come in in the very last draft and they'd been sort of polished a bit. But I hadn't looked over them countless times as I had with, with quite a lot of the rest of the work. So the the process of reading it was um, one where I, I was sort of happily cruising along in the bits that I absolutely knew. Um, and then I would suddenly hit a piece that would seem incredibly unfamiliar, which was quite exciting because I didn't know how it went. Uh, and then I would discover by reading it uh, what happened, which was, you know, <laughs> it's one way, one way of experiencing it. So that was that was the whole process. And we did um, four quite long sessions, sort of three to four hours um, of recording, which was a, a quite an intense uh, period. And uh, and then I handed over a very messy, clicky, rumbly, gappy file to my good friend, Joe Yule, who spent possibly the rest of her summer picking it apart again and mending it. Well, actually, most of the time was editing out your rumbling stomach. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, hour three... <laughs> <laughs> and you've not had your chocolate croissant, things go awfully wrong. <laughs> you were just permanently peckish. <laughs> it felt like it, actually, for the whole of that week. Um, yes, I don't know. It was it was very odd, because 
you're trying to keep up a certain level of of drama, I suppose, but not too much because that gets a bit overwhelming for a listener. Um, and I, I resolved right at the start, no comedy accents, no silly voices, no none of that business because I think that's, that's disruptive. Um, and actually the benefit you get from a writer reading their stuff is they are already completely inside the characters, completely inside. So... What for, what for me was really important uh, was just the process of concentrating myself into that immersion all the time, which is which is quite testing over hours of of reading. But the the result I hope is one where there's a there's an intensity there um, and there's a clarity of the characters, but there's also a kind of gentleness and lightness in the reading that makes it easy to listen to. Um, with the right sort of level of drama, but nothing too intrusive. So it's still allowed just to be the book it is. We are, of course, talking about Pine Tree Island because you didn't actually mention that bit. And uh... <laughs> My skills at self-promotion go from strength to strength. <laughs> that's the one. Um, yes, Pine Tree Island, uh, which, uh, yes, so that that's then going to be available on Audible, I think, from your, your friendly Amazon seller. Loads of other platforms as well. And if you're a, an Amazon boycotter, um, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, there are a whole loads, all of those American platforms as well, uh, should be carrying it. So, yeah, you can, you can find it all over the place if you're uh, an Audible type of person. And that's, that is another thing which has been, for me, a really interesting journey because I must confess, when, I first, when the book first came out, a lot of people said to me, will you put it out on Audible? And initially I said, now, listen, I'm just going to do Kindle for now because I'm a bit of a Kindle fan, which I know my publisher is going to kill me for, but I, I kind of love it living here because you can just access books easily in English and it is quite hard. Uh, to do that otherwise, although there's a great bookshop in uh, Malaga, apparently, which I must get on to because they, they're, they're worth supporting, an English bookshop in Malaga, and they'll send you stuff. I'm going way off piste here, but the point was, people were saying to me, will you do an audible or, or an audio book? And I was a bit sniffy about it. I was a bit like, well, I I quite like the the, the text. I quite like the written word. I think I might, you know, be a bit into that. And then as time went by, I realised that that was just uh, a load of pompous rubbish, um, actually. And that the way people, a lot of people, are absorbing all kinds of information at the moment, as well as the enjoyment of reading, is through Audible. And that that's the way our lives are increasingly um, being designed, in a way, or we are designing our lives like that, so that... Rather than holding a book, we're listening to something. It's not necessarily that we're, you know, multitasking or splitting attention. It's just that we're responding more uh, to an uh, to an audio communication, and that that I find rather interesting because, of course, I mean, if you want to go all historical about it, um, that's where this whole gig started out. If you wanted to hear uh, the Iliad by Homer, you know, a nice old tale of Troy and heroes and Achilles and all the gods, you would have to wait for your local friendly poet to, um, or, or singer, actually a poet-singer really would be the thing. They would pass through the village 
um, with or without some kind of musical instrument, with or without some kind of chorus to back them up. Um, and they would recite, sing. We're not, you know, no one's totally sure how this would have been presented. Obviously, that's it's quite a hard thing to find any record of. But we do know, we think, that um, people would gather and these epic tales would be told or sung um, performed in some way and if you lived in the back end of nowhere um, so say if you're up in you know San Juan it's going to be some two-bit guy who turns up um, with a goat and he's only going to know half of it if you live down in the metropolis of Ibiza town then you might get someone who's a bit more famous who's sailed in from Greece or something and they're going to have a chorus of uh you know, five or six people who can take small parts. They're going to know the all of the Iliad. They might even know the Odyssey. They're going to know all the new bits. They might have made up some fantastic bits themselves and you'll get a whole different experience. But that's the way big stories were being told back in those days. The whole thing was an audio, an audio communication. It, was, uh, it had that kind of personal uh, spoken connection not necessarily from the original writer, but the original writer would be that that text would be learnt, it would be evolved, it would possibly be slightly changed by whichever poet singer was carrying it with them. So that that I think is really that really intrigued me that we seem to be in a funny way we're going back um, as well as going forwards, and that that seems to be something that's happening a lot I think around the world in in the way that we're understanding our technology one understands its potential looking forwards but one it's quite nice I think sometimes to appreciate the resonances it has also with our past so suffice to say after a really long detour there I am quite a fan of Audible now um, I'm certainly going to do the next books um, when they get written uh, and I really, I did enjoy in the end, although it was quite challenging, the process of um, putting the first one down. Well, I really enjoyed producing it and, you know, kind of gathering together a, a team to make that happen and obviously getting Jono on board to record it, who very kindly, I think, sort of sat there, you know, as you performed the entire book, which is just an amazingly brilliant, patient um, fantastic bit of production that he did there and then obviously you know polishing that up and making it ready for publication was a, a huge huge process and an undertaking actually which I had not anticipated precisely how long that would take I think I said it was going to take a week and it took probably about six weeks um, but it's but it's out and and I mean how does it feel to have your first audio book out there? That feels lovely, actually. I mean, it, it's um, it's very nice to have the book in physical copy here on the island. Um, and, you know, it has occasional sales overseas when sort of people, mainly my family and friends, if I'm honest, um, ring up Martin and say, can I have a copy? Uh, no, it comes through Amazon as well like that. Um, but the, the, the thing that is quite exciting is having this uh, version of it out there kind of in the ether, um, especially, I mean, post-TED, that's the other thing that sort of happened, that we, we did that TED stuff, and um, and there was a really nice uh, response to the, the, the talk that I did about ancient history and, you know, looking forward and back. It seems to be the the sort of the, the theme that I'm in uh, at, at the moment. So it's quite nice because that, obviously that, that was picked up and, and listened to by a lot of people from 
all over the world. And now they can also reach into the, 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 the text that those ideas sort of sprung from. I mean, it was quite incredible that your talk got picked up by TEDx themselves. They actually decided to sort of take that talk along with another one with Ruth Ramsey, who was also on the podcast talking about her um, how to make sex a hobby. So it's quite two different paths that you guys <laughs> took with your talks. Uh, but Ted was very keen on um, bringing both of them kind of under their general banner, which is quite, quite a fascinating thing, really. Yeah, I was, I was really... Um really surprised by that I must confess uh, not not by Ruth's which was a, a great uh, talk and had the benefit of being uh, short and uh, and being a what a subject and and also what a promise you know improve your sex life in in six minutes uh, that's going to work I I had I could have gone for that title but I think I would have let it down with with my eventual content um, <laughs> Oh, I don't know. (laughs) How to appreciate, uh, how to change your appreciation of ancient history in eight minutes 59. I don't think I don't think it would have, um, you know. (laughs) There were some big, uh, big horns in your talk. Big horn, big bull horns in the talk. But um, but other than that, I think, uh, you know, then that's where we diverged. But so I was amazed that that Ted picked it up because I did think it was I thought it was a nice little talk, but I thought it was pretty niche and quite obscure. So it was lovely that they gave it um, a puff, without which I think it would have vanished pretty much without trace. But I, um, yeah, no, I, I, it's it's still out there. If anyone hasn't listened to it yet, obviously, I'm stuck. I'm stuck at the top of my eighteen thousands, and I want to get to nineteen thousand, um, which is you know, Ruth's just cruised through a million. But come on, we can do it, guys. Um, <laughs> Well, I'll pop a link to it in the episode show notes if anyone wants to go and check it out because we are pretty much back on the roll heading towards TEDx 2024, which feels quite unbelievable that the summer has almost drawn to a close and we're uh, moving in that general direction once more. Yes, it, it, now we can count our, our, our calendars by TEDs, um, which is which is great. I am actually going to do a little bit of... Uh, sort of supporting other speakers this year round, kind of giving back a little bit because I uh, I was really grateful for that TED event and what it brought and the amount of work that people put into it. And yeah, the way it just all played out was really, uh, it was a really warming experience and a really good connection to a whole load of people I'd not met before. So yeah, this year I'm going to try and just sort of help other people a bit and we'll see what happens. Well, I would um, actually like to extend a warm thank you to you because, to be honest, I was talking about this earlier on this week. I feel like the event that you ran with Alex uh, about voice, um, what was it, Nightmares Nightmares 101, Room 101, um, some horrendous acting improv workshop that I attended for a couple of days at the beginning of last year, for me, was probably the kind of, yeah, the leap that I needed or the, the kick up the butt. Um, to be able to take the leap to to get out onto stage, and I do remember you telling me that they were the best drugs I was ever going to take. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I do, and also I I remember at the end of that night you were very firm that you were never ever ever going to go onto a stage again, um, and I just thought, yeah, you will. Um, <laughs> she's hooked, um, and and there you are. You did, you did. Which is great. Uh, yeah, I think it's it is these these kind of events are they come along at the right time. I think sometimes for people, 
uh, and the trick is to to jump at them. Like so, you did at that uh, impro thing. Um, I did a bit towards that TED thing, as did you. And you just kind of, it's there are lovely opportunities on this island. I think um, one just has to trust a bit and 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 jump into space. I mean. I did say I'd never get on stage and do improv again, and I, I definitely never will, uh, just to be clear. When I write my own script to be able to present TED, that's a whole different ballgame. That's what I've been doing for the last 25 years. So I just can't imagine doing anything improvised. Like, for me, that was petrifying and everything I expected it to be, which was an actual nightmare. Um, but I'm very glad I did it because I think, like, well, it definitely could not get any worse than that. And thank God I didn't have the same experience on stage um, at TED because I had you know, everything written down in front of me just in case I forgot my words, which, you know, I wasn't supposed to learn like you guys were anyway. How in God's name did you remember an entire script to do a TEDx talk? Ah, well, that that's a trick that I've uh, learnt and evolved, actually. With age, um, I used to be able to just uh, learn stuff really, really quickly, and, and that would be that. Now I know that I need to learn it, forget it, learn it, forget it. And the third time I learn it, uh, I don't forget it. But I actually have to go through three processes. So I have to start about a month earlier than I normally would. Um, and actually, uh, we do have, I've, I realised, I sort of woke up in a slightly cold sweat last night. We're planning um, a theatre thing um, uh, with Alex as well, actually, which I think is going to be happening around the beginning of, end of no. Hang on, wait a minute. Nope, nope, nope. End of November, beginning of December is our plan. And I woke up suddenly thinking, oh, Jesus, I need to start learning this because um, I've got to learn it three times and forget it twice. So <laughs> that's how I do it. <laughs> how, do, how do you forget it? Well, you you learn it and then you realise that you've, you know, you kind of leave it for a week and then you just can't remember it. And, you know, so you learn it again and then you leave it for a week and you can't remember it again. The third time, it generally, for me, it sticks. So and and... What I'm always doing is I'm just reciting it in the car wherever I'm driving to the school um, or back. Not usually with kids in the car, poor things. That would be um, cruel. Uh, but, you know, I basically on the endless driving that we all know we do um, round and round this island, um, I'm just happily chuntering away to myself. So, you know, if you if you see a man madly gesticulating in a, in an ancient Toyota, that's me. <laughs> How long does it stay in? I mean, could you recite your entire TEDx talk right now if, if uh, the fancy took you? Wow, that's such a good question. Um, I reckon I could pick my way through it. I'm not about to try. Um, I do. I, the, <laughs> but the way memory works is really curious. When I was about 16, 17, I uh, ended up playing Orsino in Twelfth Night three times over those two years. Um, for various reasons and by the end of it I knew Twelfth Night the whole play I could recite Twelfth Night and I can still do quite a chunk of that give us a little bit oh well <laughs> will you go hunt my lord what curio the heart why so I do the noblest that I have oh when mine eyes did see Olivia first methought she purged the air of pestilence that moment was I turned into a heart and my desires like quick and fell hounds ere since pursue me how's that Come on. <laughs> that was amazing. That in decades. <laughs> so it stays in for quite a time then? Well, yeah, that one did. <laughs> like an old vintage wine, just yeah, gently that... fermenting at the bottom of one's throat. Mm, yes, just sort of filling up with sediment, I think, and corking gently. 
I wouldn't have said that sounded corked. It sounded like a fine, mature <laughs> delight. That's very kind. No, I liked it. And I think that, you know, there's just a lot of space in, uh, you know, an island uh, for more theatrical productions. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of people showbirting in various places and spaces with electronic music, which is a wonderful thing. And I'm, you know, I've said bad things about it in the past. And actually, I have been out quite a lot this summer and I've had a really, really lot of fun. Um, but I think, you know, I think arts and culture is something that this island where everyone says, oh, it's got no arts and culture. But it's just actually not true. I really just I think there is a ton of stuff happening here. But actually, what seems to be the issue is that there's nobody, there's not one place that you can go to to find out what's actually happening. And I missed this amazing tango thing last week, which I loved, would love to have gone to watch. But how do you know? Where do you, where do you look? Absolutely. No, I, I completely agree. I've got because um, um, we, we've become a bit more resolved to, to get out a bit more, frankly. Um, so, yes, we went to see some beautiful music um, at Tierra Iris the other night, and we're going to go and see something else on Saturday. Um, but, yeah, I'm like you, I things fly by and you go, oh, no, I would have loved that. Um, maybe that's part of the charm. Maybe there's a sort of, you know, you have to carry on building your mycelium network underground for... Um, uh, and I, I suppose the thing is that there are certain people that I know who seem to know everything that's going on. So I, I kind of listen out to them. Um, but I, I agree. It, it's a shame that there isn't something um, in terms of a venue, I suppose, that kind of really, really does that. Um, but then the other charm of it is, is you know, going and listening to some beautiful, beautiful singing and percussion in a disused quarry in the middle of nowhere you know and, and being eaten by mosquitoes but having an amazing time and that that's a that's a sort of special magic of the island yeah. it's funny yeah that you say that i think because yeah tierra iris does seem to be doing some amazing gigs actually and i went to watch um zach bush give a talk there last week who's an american doctor and a scientist and a you know environmentalist and I actually managed to even get an interview with him, which was just amazing. But the whole evening was absolutely spectacular. And when you actually look at the things that are going on there, there's flamenco, there's music, there's obviously talks, there's education, there's community events. And yeah, I think that there's a lot of little things that you need to keep your eye on all the time. It's like, I think Instagram is probably a key part of that. I wonder, you know, how did you get into this kind of theatrical um, side of your life? Because obviously we talked about the clown school. We don't need to go back over that one, perhaps. But I think, um, although I'd love to, obviously. Um, but what, you know, when did it all begin for you? When did your the- theatrical life commence in London? Well, I mean, in, it actually, you've put your finger on it. It was in London, but... Um, in a, a very specific way. I was visiting my eldest sister. Um, Ros is 13 years older than me. I think I was probably about, ooh, I reckon around about eight or nine. Um, and uh, Ros had this brilliant friend called Anthea, who I really, really remember. She was very, very cool and very London, and I thought she was amazing. And she said to me, um, in that way that you do to sort of eight, nine-year-olds, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, and I said, well, I really, really want to be an actor because I just that was where my heart lay. Um, but I think I probably have to be a doctor like my dad. And she sort of looked at me with this bewildered gaze and went, what? Why? 
Why don't you just do what you want to do? And it was sort of like a St. Paul Damascene conversion moment where I thought, blimey, I can. I'm actually allowed to at least dream this. So that was actually a, a huge sort of squealing gear change for me where I thought, do you know what? I'm going to I'm going to really go at this. I'm going to. Um, I'm going to see where I can get to. And from that age, and, you know, I had started doing little bits of, you know, primary school plays and stuff like that. But actually from eight or nine, I started writing plays and trying to put them on. Um, My family loved that, you can imagine. Uh, And uh, but uh, but actually by the time I got to secondary school, I was writing and producing my material and being in lots of plays. And then at university, I just sort of went on with that, started writing and directing more, taking stuff to Edinburgh. I had two amazing years taking, um, touring little pieces of work uh, across the Canadian um, fringe festival circuit, which is a which is a really, really, well, was back then, very cool place to be. Um, a string of festivals that go uh, all the way across Canada and you could kind of go from festival to festival. festival. And we all travelled together, all these different theatrical groups. Um, and so that was in my 20s as well. So that that was a really dreamy time, actually. That's, that's very nostalgic <laughs> for me. Um, and then coming out of uh, university, I, I then started working more with music. So then I was going into more music theatre and opera stuff. So I... That's where it, it kind of went on a bit of a detour, I think, my my whole sort of writing and theatre journey. Um, and also we were doing, this is when I was working with Will Todd, the composer, and we were doing quite a lot of concert platform works as well, oratorios, cantatas. So that's where we were still doing theatre. And actually when we got stuff on, it was in lovely venues, you know, doing nice things at, at Covent Garden and, and Buxton Opera House and things like that. But um, but it, I didn't. I kind of slightly lost touch with the smaller, uh, more community feeling theatre stuff, which I must confess is is something I really love, and which I think we're beginning to find our way back towards um, on this island with the with the work that um, we're doing now. A few of us: there's Joanna Ruby, there's Alex Gray, there's me, there's Marina as well. There's we're gathering more and more people and the thing that I love about doing that kind of work is that you start to know your own performing group you can write for them you also start to know your audience and you can also write something that that they're going to recognize and and so the relationship gets really beautifully uh, complex and rich and um, there's an amazing biology word where things live off each other and I've forgotten it but it starts with an S um, uh, symbiotic there you go and so there there you start to find uh, like a wealth of mainly for comedy and I must confess I in, in writing theatre I do love writing comedy it just feels to me a, a happy place to be and I I think it's nice for the audience as well, you know, to come out and just be given a, a, a damn good laugh and and also, you know, moved, shaken, uh, given the occasional slap, but principally be to be given a jolly good laugh at, at us, at themselves, at the world. It's kind of, my oh my, that is what we need most at the moment. Yes, we do indeed. And I think, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to seeing your next play on the stage 
Um, I think, yeah, I've not actually seen any of your plays uh, yet, so it'd be very interesting. Is it true that you have a, a theatre in your own garden? Um, sort of. I've got a great big Alma Fenn that the bloke who built the house uh, built to build his cars in. He really liked making cars. So it's even got um, inspection pits that can double up as sort of magic trapdoors if you really want. And what we've done is we've hung some uh, theatre curtains around the outside and put a few LED lanterns in there. And we've run a few um, youth workshops and there's been some other groups have come in and started to work with it. Um, but I have to say the progress was, was slightly knocked back when the whole thing was blown up by lightning earlier this year. So we're still repairing, um, but um, it's definitely going to be a, a rehearsal space that we use when we're rehearsing this next show. Handy to be able to stroll out barefoot as I, you like to stroll around uh, the world and uh, literally just pop across the, the lawn and into your own theatre. Well, quite. I'd never have a lawn. No, no, no. It's just sort of a sort of patch of old scrubland. You can't, can't have a lawn in Ibiza. I, I mean, for our permaculture friends, I want to um, just bring the words of Bill Mollison. I don't know if, if uh, anyone sort of rings a bell with Bill. He was, um, he was someone who I did come across a few times in life. And one of his great quotes, he's a sort of Australian inventor of permaculture. He, was, he got off an aeroplane in America and uh, one of their gardening journalists asked him what his secret was for creating the perfect lawn. You can imagine the sort of American, so these suburbs with their perfect lawns. And Bill fixed this guy with a steely gaze and said, a lawn is a badge of shame. So um, I, I would live by that. <laughs> <laughs> the cobbles, the the pebbles, and the stumpy old bits of bush. Yeah, um, of fennel, and you know. <laughs> you're quite into gardening, though. I love it. I mean, that that's a family thing. Um, uh, I'm I'm the youngest of five kids. Our dad was a, a, a very keen gardener. Mum too. Uh, my dad was sort of very much into the vegetable production, and they were into sustainability and all the John Seymour stuff um, very early on actually early adopters um, we were kind of living the good life if anyone remembers that um, British sitcom from the whenever it was um, with you know we had the ducks the pigs the vegetable garden um, all that kind of thing uh, I remember my mum uh, bravely buying grain um, which we then that the kids job was to grind it in this sort of weird grinding hopper that was attached to the end of the kitchen table into very poor quality flour which she then baked into really just sort of slabs of, of like hard earth which then my dad bravely ate um, and it was this sort of peculiar process that we went through none of us at it because it was it was really quite dangerous um, and <laughs> you'd break a tooth on it uh, but yeah, so I kind of was brought up in this quite strange uh, environment of um, of sort of self-sufficiency and, and all that kind of stuff. And my brothers and sisters largely have gone into either into farming um, or into teaching permaculture or, or hosting permaculture staff. Um, and uh, and so I was the, the very much the odd one out, but I have carried on trying to plant things. I, I'm really, it's a very happy space for me, growing vegetables. Um, and it, it's something that I'm, I'm still working on here. My goodness, it's so, it's so different working in a dry climate and a changing dry climate as well. Um, but I, I, have a, I have an enormous amount of fun 
doing it. And and the and the thing of having, I mean, we've got some established um, pomegranate trees and fig trees, and it's like wow, stuff grows on them, and you can eat it for breakfast. It just it just uh, it blows my mind on a yearly basis. I'm just glad that the. Um the strike of lightning didn't take out your veggie patch. Well, sir, my good lord! No, I mean the house and nearly me, but you know, <laughs> but the tomatoes were fine. It's <laughs> oh, oh, good. <laughs> I mean that story is just quite something, really. The fact that obviously you live on the side of a mountain in San Juan, and then yeah, I mean we get some pretty ferocious storms happening at the best of times, not just in the winter, but also in the peak of summer, really, when it just gets so disgustingly, blisteringly roasting that um yeah the heavens seek their wrath yeah they do and actually this time of year is is you you kind of see a load of the storms sort of blowing past the island and that that sort of flickering through the night um which i've i've always absolutely loved um and actually no i, I mean our lightning strike was january the 9th nine twenty seven a.m i have it very clearly <laughs> logged on my memory um uh, but uh, but I'm I'm sort of aware that I you know as this time of year the big the big lightning sort of storms come over the horizon again and uh, and I have to make friends with them because I have to say that that last experience was uh, was a bit traumatic and uh, I need to rediscover my confidence that I'm not going you know, lightning doesn't strike twice we hope in the same place definitely not no not not uh, tempting fate on that front I think yeah. It's just one of those quite crazy, crazy things. But when you go hiking around the countryside of Ibiza, you'll always see this one nuked tree in, in you know, the campo. And you just think, yeah, I know exactly what happened to that tree. I mean, I do hike a lot. And when you see just this one random tree that's kind of obviously grey and dead and clearly has been electrocuted, you just sort of think, wow. It's quite a miracle, really, that the entire valley doesn't go up in a in a ball of flames, which has obviously happened not so far from your doorstep in the not-too-distant past. Well, that was, um, yeah, although 2011 was the big one up in the north. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure there would be uh, enormous, uh, an, a long history of, of, of burns across the whole island as a result of lightning strikes. Um, but... Uh, but no, I mean, the, I have to say the the way in which uh, the bomberos are, are dealing with fires in the north at the moment is really impressive. They are seriously on it. Um, after that 12, 2011 one just uh, was uncontrollable, I think, um, once it had got away. So they're um, they're definitely they're definitely very well organised and quite well prepared these days. So. We had Peter Leno on, actually, from Black Nose Wines, which is not too far from where you live, in uh, his vineyard in San Juan. And he was saying that, you know, he arrived there when he'd heard about the fire and he went to bed that night and there were still embers, like, you know, sizzling on his doorstep, essentially. Um, and you and I had a quite in- interesting conversation, tenuous link, about wine recently, which I really loved, because you were saying in the research of your book that you discovered about the wine community of Menorca, which I really would love to talk about. Oh, well, this is, this is the... Um, yes, now, Menorca... Um, the thing about Menorca, uh, which makes it a really cool place to visit is that uh, its ancient history is just right there. I mean, they've got more of those little purple signs saying ancient monument than street signs. The the kind of human activity on Menorca um, around about 1000 BC, was it was really busy there. It was really heavily populated, actually. 
um, they'd kind of worked out a whole load of incredible social structures that allowed a density of population that you simply won't find. It's certainly not on Ibiza. Um, Mallorca, not so much, actually, because it's a bigger island. There was something about the way in which uh, they had they had really, I think they had some good soil, some good weather, um, and uh, and these, as I say, these really subtle and sensitive social structures uh, until <laughs> until the wine arrived from guess where? Yes, here. The Romans got really good at growing uh, uh, vineyards here. I mean, that, that was happening with when the, the Punic settlers were on the island. But the Romans really were exporting a, a lot of wine out of those northern valleys, actually, where Peter's now growing his vines. Um, if you look at those ancient terraces that the fires exposed, they think that those were kind of, they're, they're more Roman and post-Roman. They're not ancient, ancient, ancient. But um, but that's you know a lot of it is is old vineyard, and Ibethan wine, as actually I think it still is. It tends to be really strong. I think it's it's to do with the soil. It's to do with the heat. Um, and when it was exported to Menorca. It absolutely blew this lovely, soft, subtle social system apart because in, in the way that, um, you know, a few too many is a few too many, frankly. And uh, and there were a combination of different things, um, including um, the whole of the, this bit of the Western Mediterranean was sort of being militarized in the lead up to the big um, Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage. So all the sort of slingshot warriors tended to come from Mallorca and Menorca. And so there was a whole thing going on there where these lovely, lovely social systems just broke down under the pressure of militarization and booze, frankly. So, wow, that's a bit of, you know, uh, history going round and round in circles. Do you think much has changed? Not really, no. no. <laughs> well, actually, I, I remember when I first got to the island, they were making, I can't remember the name of the company, but they were making a wine called Ereso, the heresy. Um, because it was 14, 15% or something, which was, you know, punchy for a, for a wine. Um, and I, that's, that's, why, that's why I think actually the old island wines as well would have been, they would have been known probably in the region for being very, very strong. I mean, yeah, when you have a 14 or 15% wine, you really know about that in the morning. Just one or two glasses is enough to give you a head. Um, but I think that is, as you said, definitely something that happens with not just local wines, but you know, there's a lot of white reds, particularly that you drink in the winter, which is probably like the worst time to be drinking when the you know, less outdoor life to kind of get over it and get a bit of, bit of fresh air into the old uh, lungs the next day. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? Just observing, um, I think, just the fact that people are even making wine of, of 15% these days, because that is, you know, it's strong when you've had a couple of glasses. But I think having said, you know, this sort of desecration of these kind of communities, you know, was that sort of similar to, do you think, perhaps the theatrical world of London when you were younger? Oh, it, that's now that's a really tenuous link. Um, <laughs> I think my, I mean, my kind of early, early theatre life, uh, which was really university based. Um, uh, and I mean, I did some nice, nice things at the Edinburgh Festival and a lot at university, but that was all at Bristol, actually. I went to Bristol and I didn't make the move to London um, till a little bit later, um, even though a lot of my friends and, and contemporaries did. Um, and, um, yeah, no, I, I, I kind of spent uh, 
a f- those years in Bristol with a lot of really, really nice, nice um, performers and writers and directors. And my God, yeah, we had a great time. We spent a lot of time in the pub um, before, during and after rehearsals. What can I say? <laughs> They were happy days. <laughs> was that, do you think, where a lot of the, the inspiration came from? Nah, that's just, you know, young people being daft, isn't it? Um, you know, the, the, it, the truth of the matter is that you, I don't know. I, I, I see certainly the friends that I have who have survived uh, and continue in their showbiz theatrical careers are not the ones who went wild. The ones who went wild tend to slightly burn out. Um, and uh, and I think, you know, I was certainly on that trajectory, so I'm quite glad I kind of, you know, slightly changed my my courses, certainly in terms of the, what I was doing and also what I was ingesting. Um, but it, it's, it, they do go hand in hand. Um, there is a sense of elation that uh, is to do with performing, somehow just meshes with that sense of flight that uh, wild drinking when you're a young person tends to, that's how it feels. And so the two kind of, they, they, they work together and they, they work together in an exciting, fun, yeah, in a way it's creative. Um, after a while, I think it starts to work a little bit less well, like anything that you slightly overuse begins to work less well. Um, and also you begin to realise as you get older that what well, certainly my experience was that if you want to write something, if you want to write anything of any length, size, whatever, whether it's play, novel, whatever, you need to have a level of consistency that uh, you don't get if you're always a little bit wrecked the night before and a little bit hungover the morning after. Because that's the kind of there's a there's a nasty oscillating curve of thinking that you're the best thing in the universe and then the worst thing in the universe. And actually, if you want to do a big piece of work, you need to be somewhere in the middle where you can look at the stuff you've written honestly without thinking it's brilliant or dreadful. Um, And for that, you need a little bit of clarity. Why do you think there is this kind of romanticised um, culture of, of debauchery, I guess, in the kind of performing arts or the creative industries or, you know, even in the media? I I think, gosh, I don't know. There's. OK, if I want to, if I were to, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to go quite, quite abstract on this. So be patient. Follow me. I, I do have a bit of a feeling that uh, the way in which we approach our stars and our celebrities and the the way we come to them through the media is quite a similar human uh, craving to the one that is about gods, heroes, those stories as well. So there's something in humans that's looking towards these heroes, these divines, these untouchables, these others Um, and wants to know their story and wants to know the salacious gossip and wants to hear about their triumphs and their disasters. Uh, And if you look through any uh, ancient mythology, although the Mediterranean is really strong on this, I have to say, in terms of its mythologies, it's all there. Um, There's there's booze, sex, uh, uh, murder, uh, betrayal, 
trickery, the whole lot. I mean, it's like the Daily Mail. It's basically, you know, Greek mythology is the Daily Mail just carved on bits of stone. Um, and, <laughs> and so we, we kind of have this, this response. And, and even in those ancient days, the, the, the way in which um, intoxicants were used around uh, the kind of the storytelling, the religion... Is, is another fascinating thing. I mean, the, the use of wine, we were talking about the strong wines of Ibiza, but actually a lot of those Mediterranean wines, the way you, the way they were used, that socially they would always be watered down. You would always water the wine if you were having a, a party. If you didn't want to turn it into a sort of an orgy and a sort of murder fest, you had to water the wine. Um, but when you had it in religious ceremonies, you'd be using it neat, and that's where the whole Dionysian uh, bacchanal cult um, story comes from of you know the wild maidens dancing in the woods ripping people apart all these stories I mean it's all there um, the, the, the the madness of uh, that bacchanalia it kind of ties in with these incredibly strong um, wines that possibly had a bit of a hallucinogen, a hallucinogen edge to them as well um, you know the, the, there were probably many other substances being used around those um, at the same time. And so I think that, you know, when you look at the fact that in ancient times we the people were looking towards their their gods and their heroes and their made-up things via this lens of uh, these incredibly strong and intoxicating substances, here we are in a, a remarkably similar place uh, and probably doing the same things. And I, I sort of... I My thing always is to wonder... When that first voice says, yeah, but we're much more sophisticated now, I always want to come back and ask myself the question, maybe they were just as sophisticated then um, because the stories are subtle and deft and and full of nuance, um, probably a little bit subtler than the Daily Mail, you know, if we're honest. Um, so uh, I, I think that there's many more parallels um, between our contemporary fascination with a celebrity scene and its wildness um, uh, and the way an, a much older culture was looking towards its heroes and its gods and their intoxicating wildness. Intoxicating wildness. How did we get there? Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, well, that's pretty much what is happening rather a lot on Ibiza and obviously it's just fascinating to hear it from that perspective and also you know obviously if, if you found out that part of Menorca's community was wiped out by the strong wines of Ibiza what else have you uncovered or unearthed on your travels of, of writing these historical books give us one more final factor before we finish the podcast that we can savour like a fine wine oh god lord um well um the one that I am absolutely intrigued by at the moment, because it it's actually not resolved. So I'm I, I'm not going to give you your your nugget, but I'm going to give you a watch this space. Is that um, there's a whole chunk of what happened on this island when the first people arrived between that first village at Sakaleta and the establishment of the settlement at Ibiza. And the archaeologists are always in a little bit of a to and fro about the timeline of that. Um, and actually, the the three books, here he goes, back on, he's selling again. Um, but the three books do chart this journey from the village to the town and, and how the, the, the first um, proper 
community starts to evolve uh, here on Ibiza with those those early sort of Phoenician settlers. But there's a bit in between, and it's underneath the airport. And every time they dig something up around the airport, they discover a whole load of new stuff. You'll have noticed if you were in if you're in the sad Brexit queue, winding round at the top of the escalator trying to get back to England ever. Um, you, you do get the chance to wind around some nice little bits of pottery that they dug up recently. And I think the thing is that that part of the island has got an enormous amount of history that is still to find out. I don't know whether we ever will, but I know that they're going to start, um, you know, kind of writing some really nice reports up on the stuff they've found so far. But yeah, whatever whatever it is we need to know next, it's underneath the runway. It just reminds me of those sort of people that come out at like six o'clock in the morning on the beaches with their metal detectors and uh, start trying to find the pennies and the rings and the jewels that people have dropped the night before in a drunken stupor. Perhaps it's just a few odds and ends like that. Well, I hope I hope something more. I, I would love, I mean, I, I've no idea um, whether they found anything underneath that enormous car park, but I know that they did do quite a big dig um, on that bit as well. So let's see, let's see. Well, let's, let's, let's ponder when that big dig is going to happen. I like the idea um, of having a bit of a rummage around down there and seeing what we seeing what we find. Perhaps we should have a little a little outing. Thank you, Ben, for um, yes talking about audiobooks and many other subjects in between. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. A pleasure as always.